Chapter Four of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashwath Ganeshan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Makin, Episode 6, Chapter 4. Whilst de la Haye was every day gaining greater influence over my weakened mind, whilst I was every day devoutly attending Mass, sermons, and every office of the Church, I received from Venice a letter containing the pleasant information that my affair had followed its natural course, namely, that it was entirely forgotten, and in another letter Monsieur de Bragadin informed me that the minister had written to the Venetian ambassador in Rome with instructions to assure the Holy Father that Baron Bavois would immediately after his arrival in Venice receive in the army of the Republic an appointment which would enable him to live honorably and to gain a high position by his talents. That letter overcame Monsieur de la Haye with joy and I completed his happiness by telling him that nothing hindered me from going back to my native city. He immediately made up his mind to go to Modena in order to explain to his pupil how he was to act in Venice, to open for himself the way to a brilliant fortune. De La Haye depended on me in every way. He saw my fanaticism, and he was well aware that it is a disease which rages as long as the causes from which it has sprung are in existence. As he was going with me to Venice, he flattered himself that he could easily feed the fire he had lighted. Therefore he wrote to Bavois that he would join him immediately, and two days after he took leave of me, weeping abundantly, praising highly the virtues of my soul, calling me his son, his dear son, and assuring me that his great affection for me had been caused by the mark of election which he had seen on my countenance. After that, I felt my calling and election were sure. A few days after the departure of De La Haye, I left Parma in my carriage, with which I parted in Fusina, and from there I proceeded to Venice. After an absence of a year, my three friends received me as if I had been their guardian angel. They expressed their impatience to welcome the two saints announced by my letters. An apartment was ready for De La Haye in the palace of Monsieur de Bragadin, and as state reasons did not allow my father to receive in his house a foreigner who had not yet entered the service of the Republic, two rooms had been engaged for Bavois in the neighborhood. They were thoroughly amazed at the wonderful change which had taken place in my morals. Every day attending Mass, often present at the preaching and at the other services, never showing myself at the casino, frequenting only a certain café, which was the place of meeting for all men of acknowledged piety and reserve, and always studying when I was not in their company. When they compared my actual mode of living with the former one, they marveled, and they could not sufficiently thank the eternal providence of God, whose inconceivable ways they admired. They blessed the criminal actions which had compelled me to remain one year away from my native place. I crowned their delight by paying all my debts without asking any money from Monsieur de Bragadin, who, 
not having given me anything for one year, had religiously put together every month the sum he had allowed me. I need not say how pleased the worthy friends were when they saw that I had entirely given up gambling. I had a letter from De La Haye in the beginning of May. He announced that he was on the eve of starting with the son so dear to his heart, and that he would soon place himself at the disposition of the respectable men to whom I had announced him. Knowing the hour at which the barge arrived from Modena, we all went to meet them, except Monsieur de Bragadin, who was then engaged at the Senate. We returned to the palace before him, and when he came back, finding us all together, he gave his new guests the most friendly welcome. De La Haye spoke to me of a hundred things, but I scarcely heard what he said, so much was my attention taken up by Bavois. He was so different to what I had fancied him to be from the impression I had received from De La Haye that my ideas were altogether upset. I had to study him for three days before I could make up my mind to like him. I must give his portrait to my readers. Baron Bavois was a young man of about twenty-five, of middle size, handsome in features, well-made, fair, of an equable temper, speaking well and with intelligence, and uttering his words with a tone of modesty which suited him exactly. His features were regular and pleasing. His teeth were beautiful. His hair was long and fine, always well taken care of and exhaling the perfume of the pomatum with which it was dressed. That individual, who was the exact opposite of the man that De La Haye had led me to imagine, surprised my friends greatly. But their welcome did not in any way betray their astonishment for their pure and candid minds would not admit a judgment contrary to the good opinion they had formed of his morals. As soon as we had established De La Haye in his beautiful apartment, I accompanied Bavois to the rooms engaged for him, where his luggage had been sent by my orders. He found himself in very comfortable quarters, and being received with distinction by his worthy host, who was already greatly prejudiced in his favor, the young baron embraced me warmly, pouring out all his gratitude and assuring me that he felt deeply all I had done for him without knowing him, as De La Haye had informed him of all that had occurred. I pretended not to understand what he was alluding to, and to change the subject of conversation, I asked him how he intended to occupy his time in Venice, until his military appointment gave him serious duties to perform. I trust, he answered, that we shall all enjoy ourselves in an agreeable way, for I have no doubt that our inclinations are the same. Mercury and De La Haye had so completely besotted me that I should have found some difficulty in understanding these words, however intelligible they were, but if I did not go any further than the outward signification of his answer, I could not help remarking that he had already taken the fancy of the two daughters of the house. They were neither pretty nor ugly, but he showed himself gracious towards them like a man who understands his business. I had, however, already made such great progress in my mystical education that I considered the compliments he addressed to the girls as mere forms of politeness. For the first day, I took my young baron only to the St. Mark's Square and to the café where we remained until supper-time, as it had been arranged that he would take his meals with us. At the supper-table, 
He showed himself very witty, and Monsieur Dandelot named an hour for the next day when he intended to present him to the secretary for war. In the evening, I accompanied him to his lodging, where I found that the two young girls were delighted because the young Swiss nobleman had no servant, and because they hoped to convince him that he would not require one. The next day, a little earlier than the time appointed, I called upon him with Monsieur Dandolo and Monsieur Barbaro, who were both to present him at the war office. We found him at his toilet, under the delicate hands of the eldest girl, who was dressing his hair. His room was fragrant with the perfumes of his pomatums and scents. This did not indicate a sainted man, yet my two friends did not feel scandalized, although their astonishment was very evident, for they had not expected that show of gallantry from a young neophyte. I was nearly bursting into a loud laugh when I heard Monsieur Dandelot remark that unless we hurried, we would not have time to hear mass, whereupon Bavois inquired whether it was a festival. Monsieur Dandelot, without passing any remark, answered negatively, and after that, mass was not again mentioned. When Bavois was ready, I left them and went a different way. I met them again at dinner-time, during which the reception given to the young baron by the secretary was discussed, and in the evening my friends introduced him to several ladies who were very much pleased with him. In less than a week he was so well known that there was no fear of his time hanging wearily on his hands. But that week was likewise enough to give me a perfect insight into his nature and way of thinking. I should not have required such a long study if I had not at first begun on a wrong scent, or, rather, if my intelligence had not been stultified by my fanaticism. Bavois was particularly fond of women, of gambling, of every luxury, and, as he was poor, women supplied him with the best part of his resources. As to religious faith, he had none, and as he was no hypocrite, he confessed as such to me. Have you contrived, I said to him one day, such as you are, to deceive De La Haye? God forbid I should deceive anyone. De La Haye is perfectly well aware of my system, and of my way of thinking on religious matters. But being himself very devout, he entertains a holy sympathy for my soul, and I do not object to it. He has bestowed many kindnesses upon me, and I feel grateful to him. My affection for him is all the greater because he never teases me with his dogmatic lessons or with sermons respecting my salvation, of which I have no doubt that God, in his fatherly goodness, will take care. All this is settled between De La Haye and me, and we live on the best of terms. The best part of the joke is that, while I was studying him, Bavois, without knowing it, restored my mind to its original state and I was ashamed of myself when I realized that I had been the dupe of a Jesuit who was an arrant hypocrite in spite of the character of holiness which he assumed and which he could play with such marvelous ability. From that moment I fell again into all my former practices. But let us return to De La Haye. That late Jesuit, who in his inmost heart loved nothing but his own comfort, already advanced in years and therefore no longer caring for the fair sex, was exactly the sort of man to please my simple-minded trio of friends. As he never spoke to them but of God, of his angels, and of everlasting glory, and as he was always accompanying them to church, they found him a delightful companion. 
They longed for the time when he would discover himself, for they imagined he was at the very least a Rosicrucian, or perhaps the hermit of Curpenia, who had taught me the cabalistic science and made me a present of the immortal perilous. They felt grieved because the oracle had forbidden them, through my cabalistic lips, ever to mention my science in the presence of Tartuffe. As I had foreseen, that interdition left me to enjoy as I pleased all the time that I would have been called upon to devote to their devout credulity. And besides, I was naturally afraid, lest De La Haye, such as I truly believed him to be, would never lend himself to that trifling nonsense, and would, for the sake of deserving greater favor at their hands, endeavor to undeceive them and to take my place in their confidence. I soon found out that I had acted with prudence, for in less than three weeks the cunning fox had obtained so great an influence over the mind of my three friends that he was foolish enough not only to believe that he did not want me any more to support his credit with them, but likewise that he could supplant me whenever he chose. I could see it clearly in his way of addressing me, as well as in the change in his proceedings. He was beginning to hold with my friends frequent conversations to which I was not summoned, and he had contrived to make them introduce him to several families which I was not in the habit of visiting. He assumed his grand Jesuitic airs, and although with honeyed word he would take the liberty of censuring me, because I sometimes spent a night out, and, as he would say, God knows where, I was particularly vexed at his seeming to accuse me of leading his pupil astray. He then would assume the tone of a man, speaking jestingly, but I was not deceived. I thought it was time to put an end to his game, and with that intention I paid him a visit in his bedroom. When I was seated, I said, I come, as a true worshipper of the gospel, to tell you in private something that, another time, I would say in public. What is it, my dear friend? I advise you for the future not to hurl at me the slightest taunt respecting the life I am leading with Bavois when we are in the presence of my three worthy friends. I do not object to listen to you when we are alone. You are wrong in taking my innocent jest seriously. Wrong or right, that does not matter. Why do you never attack your proselyte? Be careful for the future, or I might, on my side, and only in jest like you, throw at your head some repartee which you have every reason to fear, and thus repay you with interest. And bowing to him, I left his room. A few days afterwards I spent a few hours with my friends and Paralis, and the oracle enjoined them never to accomplish without my advice anything that might be recommended or even insinuated by Valentine. That was the cabalistic name of the disciple of Escobar. I knew I could rely upon their obedience to that order. De La Haye soon took notice of some slight change. He became more reserved, and Bavois, whom I informed of what I had done, gave me his full approbation. He felt convinced, as I was, that De La Haye had been useful to him only through weak or selfish reasons, that is, that he would have cared little for his soul if his face had not been handsome, and if he had not known that he would derive important advantages from having caused his so-called conversion. Finding that the Venetian government was postponing his appointment from day to day, Bavois entered the service of the French ambassador. The decision made it necessary for him not only to cease his visits to Monsieur de Baradin, but even to give up his intercourse with de la Haye, who was the guest of that senator. It was one of the strictest laws of the Republic that the patricians and their families shall not hold any intercourse with the foreign ambassadors and their suites. 
But the decision taken by Bavois did not prevent my friend speaking in his favor, and they succeeded in obtaining employment for him, as will be seen further on. The husband of Christine, whom I never visited, invited me to go to the casino, which he was in the habit of frequenting with his aunt and his wife, who had already presented him with a token of their mutual affection. I accepted his invitation, and I found Christine as lovely as ever, and speaking the Venetian dialect, like her husband. I made in that casino the acquaintance of a chemist, who inspired me with a wish to follow a course of chemistry. I went to his house, where I found a young girl who greatly pleased me. She was a neighbor, and came every evening to keep the chemist's elderly wife company, and at a regular hour, a servant called to take her home. I had never made love to her but once, in a trifling sort of way, and in the presence of the old lady, but I was surprised not to see her after that for several days, and I expressed my astonishment. The good lady told me that very likely the girl's cousin, an abbe, with whom she was residing, had heard of my seeing her every evening, had become jealous, and would not allow her to come again. An abbe jealous? Why not? He never allows her to go out except on Sundays to attend the first mass at the church of Santa Maria Mater Domini, close by his dwelling. He did not object to her coming here because he knew that we never had any visitors, and very likely he has heard through the servant of your being here every evening. A great enemy to all jealous persons, and a greater friend to my amorous fancies, I wrote to the young girl that if she would leave her cousin for me, I would give her a house in which she should be the mistress, and that I would surround her with good society and every luxury to be found in Venice. I added that I would be in the church on the following Sunday to receive her answer. I did not forget my appointment, and her answer was that the abbe, being her tyrant, she would consider herself happy to escape out of his clutches, but that she could not make up her mind to follow me unless I consented to marry her. She concluded her letter by saying that, in case I entertained honest intentions towards her, I had only to speak to her mother, Jean Machetti, who resided in Lucia, a city thirty miles distant from Venice. This letter piqued my curiosity, and I even imagined that she had written it in concert with the Abbe. Thinking that they wanted to dupe me, and besides, finding the proposal of marriage ridiculous, I determined on having my revenge. But I wanted to get to the bottom of it, and I made up my mind to see the girl's mother. She felt honored by my visit, and greatly pleased when, after I had shown her her daughter's letter, I told her that I wished to marry her, but that I should never think of it as long as she resided with the abbé. That abbé, she said, is a distant relative. He used to live alone in his house in Venice, and two years ago he told me that he was in want of a housekeeper. He asked me to let my daughter go to him in that capacity, assuring me that in Venice she would have good opportunities of getting married. He offered to give me a deed in writing, stating that on the day of her marriage he would give her all of his furniture valued at about one thousand ducats, and the inheritance of a small estate, bringing one hundred ducats a year, which Lai possesses here. It seemed to me a good bargain, and my daughter being pleased with the offer, I accepted. He gave me the deed duly, drawn by a notary, and my daughter went with him. I know that he makes a regular slave of her, but she chose to go. Nevertheless, I need not tell you that my most ardent wish is to see her married, for as long as the girl is without a husband, she is too much exposed to temptation, and the poor mother cannot rest in peace. Then come to Venice with me. You will take your daughter out of the abbe's house, and I will make her my wife. Unless that is done, I cannot marry her, for I should dishonor myself if I received my wife from his hands. Oh, no! 
for he is my cousin, although only in the fourth degree, and what is more, he is a priest, and says the mass every day. You make me laugh, my good woman. Everybody knows that a priest says the mass without depriving himself of certain trifling enjoyments. Take your daughter with you, or give up all hope of ever seeing her married. But if I take her with me, he will not give her his furniture, and perhaps he will sell his small estate here. I undertake to look to that part of the business. I promise to take her out of his hands, and to make her come back to you with all the furniture, and to obtain the estate when she is my wife. If you knew me better, you would not doubt what I say. Come to Venice, and I assure you that you shall return here in four or five days with your daughter. She read the letter which had been written to me by her daughter again, and told me that, being a poor widow, she had not the money necessary to pay the expenses of her journey to Venice, or of her return to Luisa. In Venice you shall not want for anything, I said. In the meantime, here are ten sequins. Ten sequins? Then I can go with my sister-in-law? Come with anyone you like. But let us go soon, so as to reach Chiozza, where we must sleep. Tomorrow we shall dine in Venice, and I undertake to defray all expenses. We arrived in Venice the next day at ten o'clock, and I took the two women to Casteo, to a house the first floor of which was empty. I left them there and provided them with the deed signed by the abbé. I went to dine with my three friends, to whom I said that I had been to Chiozza on important business. After dinner, I called upon the lawyer, Marco de Lesse, who told me that if the mother presented a petition to the president of the Council of Ten, she would immediately be invested with power to take her daughter away with all the furniture in the house, which she could send wherever she pleased. I instructed him to have the petition ready, saying that I would come the next morning with the mother, who would sign it in his presence. I brought the mother early in the morning, and after she had signed the petition we went to the Boussole, where she presented it to the president of the council. In less than a quarter of an hour a bailiff was ordered to repair to the house of the priest with the mother, and to put her in possession of the daughter, and of all the furniture, which she would immediately take away. The order was carried into execution to the very letter. I was with the mother in a gondola as near as possible to the house, and I had provided a large boat in which the sbiri stowed all the furniture found on the premises. When it was all done, the daughter was brought to the gondola, and she was extremely surprised to see me. Her mother kissed her and told her that I would be her husband the very next day. She answered that she was delighted, and that nothing had been left in her tyrant's house except his bed and his clothes. When we reached Castello, I ordered the furniture to be brought out of the boat. We had dinner, and I told the three women that they must go back to Lucia, where I would join them as soon as I had settled all my affairs. I spent the afternoon gaily with my intended. She told us that the abbe was dressing when the bailiff presented the order of the Council of Ten, with injunctions to allow its free execution under penalty of death that the abbé finished his toilet, went out to say his mass, and that everything had been done without the slightest opposition. I was told, she added, that my mother was awaiting me in the gondola, but I did not expect to find you, and I never suspected that you were at the bottom of the whole affair. It is the first proof I give you of my love. These words made her smile very pleasantly. I took care to have a good supper and some excellent wines, and after we had spent two hours at the table in the midst of the joys of Bacchus, I devoted four more to a pleasant tete-a-tete with my intended bride. The next morning, after breakfast, I had the whole of the furniture stowed in a peota, which I had engaged for the purpose and paid for beforehand. 
I gave ten more sequins to the mother, and sent them away all three in great delight. The affair was completed to my honor, as well as to my entire satisfaction, and I returned home. The case had made so much noise that my friends could not have remained ignorant of it. The consequence was that when they saw me, they showed their surprise and sorrow. De La Haye embraced me with an air of profound grief, but it was a feigned feeling, a harlequin's dress, which he had the talent of assuming with the greatest facility. Monsieur de Bradin alone laughed heartily, saying to the others that they did not understand the affair, and that it was the forerunner of something great, which was known only to heavenly spirits. On my side, being ignorant of the opinion they entertained of the matter, and certain that they were not informed of all the circumstances, I laughed like Monsieur de Bradin, but said nothing. I had nothing to fear, and I wanted to amuse myself with all that would be said. We sat down to table, and Monsieur Barbaro was the first to tell me, in a friendly manner, that he hoped at least that this was not the day after my wedding. Then people say that I am married. It is said everywhere and by everybody. The members of the council themselves believe it, and they have good reason to believe that they are right. To be right in believing such a thing, they ought to be certain of it. And those gentlemen have no such certainty, as they are not infallible any more than anyone except God. I tell you that they are mistaken. I like to perform good actions and to get pleasure for my money, but not at the expense of my liberty. Whenever you want to know my affairs, recollect that you can receive information about them only from me, and public rumor is only good to amuse fools. But, said Monsieur Dandelot, you spent the night with the person who is represented as your wife. Quite true, but I have no account to give to anyone respecting what I have done last night. Are you not of my opinion, Monsieur de la Haye? I wish you would not ask my opinion, for I do not know, but I must say that public rumor ought not to be despised. The deep affection I have for you causes me to grieve for what the public voice says about you. How is it that those reports do not grieve Monsieur de Bracadin, who has certainly greater affection for me than you have? I respect you, but I have learned at my own expense that slander is to be feared. It is said that in order to get hold of a young girl who was residing with her uncle, a worthy priest, you suborned a woman who declared herself to be the girl's mother, and thus deceiving the Supreme Council through the authority of which she obtained possession of the girl for you. The bailiff sent by the council swears that you were in the gondola with a false mother when the young girl joined her. It is said that the deed, in virtue of which you caused the worthy ecclesiastic's furniture to be carried off, is false, and you are blamed for having made the highest body of the state a stepping-stone to crime. In fine, it is said that even if you have married the girl, and no doubt of it is entertained, the members of the council will not be silent as to the fraudulent means you had recourse to in order to carry out your intentions successfully. That is a very long speech, I said to him coldly, but learn from me that a wise man who has heard a criminal accusation related with so many absurd particulars ceases to be wise when he makes himself the echo of what he has heard. For if the accusation should turn out to be a calumny, he would himself become the accomplice of the slanderer. After that sentence, which brought the blood to the face of the Jesuit, but which my friends thought very wise, I entreated him, in a meaning voice, to spare his anxiety about me, and to be quite certain that I knew the laws of honor, and that I had judgment enough to take care of myself, 
and to let foul tongues say what they liked about me, just as I did when I heard them speak ill of him. The adventure was the talk of the city for five or six days, after which it was soon forgotten. But three months having elapsed without my having paid any visit to Lucia, or having answered the letters written to me by the Damigella Marchetti, and without sending her the money she claimed of me, she made up her mind to take certain proceedings, which might have had serious consequences, although they had none whatever in the end. One day Ignacio, the bailiff of the dreaded tribunal of the state inquisitors, presented himself as I was sitting at table with my friends, de la Haye, and two other guests. He informed me that the Cavaliere Cantarini dal Zoffo wanted to see me, and would wait for me the next morning at such an hour at the Madonna del Lorto. I rose from the table and answered, with a bow, that I would not fail to obey the wishes of His Excellency. The bailiff then left us. I could not possibly guess what a such a high dignitary of state would want with my humble person. Yet the message made us rather anxious, for Cantarini dal Zoffo was one of the inquisitors, that is to say, a bird of very ill omen. Monsieur de Bracadin, who had been an inquisitor while he was counsellor, and therefore knew the habits of the tribunal, told me that I had nothing to fear. Ignacio was dressed in private clothes, he added, and therefore he did not come as the official messenger of the dread tribunal. Monsieur Cantarini wishes to speak to you only as a private citizen, as he sends you word to call at his palace, and not at the courthouse. He is an elderly man, strict but just, to whom you must speak frankly, and without equivocating, Otherwise, you would make matters worse. I was pleased with Monsieur de Bragadin's advice, which was of great use to me. I called at the appointed time. I was immediately announced, and I had not long to wait. I entered the room, and His Excellency, seated at a table, examined me from head to foot for one minute without speaking to me. He then rang the bell and ordered his servant to introduce the two ladies who were waiting in the next room. I guessed at once what was the matter and felt no surprise when I saw the woman Marchetti and her daughter. His Excellency asked me if I knew them. I must know them, Monsignor, as one of them will become my wife when she has convinced me by her good conduct that she is worthy of that honor. Her conduct is good. She lives with her mother at Lucia. You have deceived her. Why do you postpone your marriage with her? Why do you not visit her? You never answered her letters, and you let her be in want. I cannot marry her, Your Excellency, before I have enough to support her. That will come in three or four years, thanks to a situation which Monsieur de Bragadin, my only protector, promises to obtain for me. Until then, she must live honestly and support herself by working. I will only marry her when I am convinced of her honesty, and particularly when I am certain that she has given up all intercourse with the Abbé, her cousin in the fourth degree. I do not visit her because my confessor and my conscience forbid me to go to her house. She wishes you to give her a legal promise of marriage and sustentation. Monseigneur, I am under no obligation to give her a promise of marriage, and having no means whatever, I cannot support her. She must earn her own living with her mother. When she lived with her cousin, said her mother, she never wanted for anything, and she shall go back to him. If she returns to his house, I shall not take the trouble of taking her out of his hands a second time and Your Excellency will then see that I was right to defer my marriage with her until I was convinced of her honesty. The judge told me that my presence was no longer necessary. It was the end of the affair, and I never heard any more about it. The recital of the dialogue greatly amused my friends. At the beginning of the carnival of 1750, I won a prize of 3,000 ducats at the lottery, 
Fortune made me that present when I did not require it, for I had held the bank during the autumn and had won. It was at a casino where no nobleman dared to present himself, because one of the partners was an officer in the service of the Duke de Montalegre, the Spanish ambassador. The citizens of Venice fell ill at ease with the patricians, and that is always the case under an aristocratic government, because equality exists in reality only between the members of such a government. As I intended to take a trip to Paris, I placed one thousand sequins in Monsieur de Bragadin's hands, and with that project in view I had the courage to pass the carnival without risking my money at the faro-table. I had taken a share of one-fourth in the bank of an honest patrician, and early in Lent he handed me a large sum. Towards mid-Lent my friend Balletti returned from Mantua to Venice. He was engaged at the St. Moses Theatre as ballet-master during the Fair of the Assumption. He was with Marina, but they did not live together. She made the conquest of an English Jew called Mendez, who spent a great deal of money for her. That Jew gave me good news of Therese, whom he had known in Naples, and in whose hands he had left some of his spoils. The information pleased me, and I was very glad to have been prevented by Henriette from joining Therese in Naples, as I had intended, for I should certainly have fallen in love with her again, and God knows what the consequences might have been. It was at that time that Bavois was appointed captain in the service of the Republic. He rose rapidly in his profession, as I shall mention hereafter. De La Haye undertook the education of a young nobleman called Felix Calvi, and for a short time afterwards he accompanied him to Poland. I met him again in Vienna three years later. I was making my preparations to go to the fair of Reggio, then to Turin, where the whole of Italy was congregating for the marriage of the Duke of Savoy with the Princess of Spain, daughter of Philip V, and lastly to Paris, where Madame la Dauphine being pregnant, magnificent preparations were made in the expectations of the birth of a prince. Baletti was likewise on the point of undertaking the same journey. He was recalled by his parents, who were dramatic artists. His mother was the celebrated Sylvia. Baletti was engaged at the Italian theatre in Paris, as dancer and first gentleman. I could not choose a companion more to my taste, more agreeable, or in a better position to procure me numerous advantageous acquaintances in Paris. I bade farewell to my three excellent friends, promising to return within two years. I left my brother Francois in the studio of Simonetti, the painter of battle-pieces, known as the Parmesan. I gave him a promise to think of him in Paris, where, at that time particularly, great talent was always certain of a high fortune. My readers will see how I kept my word. I likewise left in Venice my brother Jean, who had returned to that city after having travelled through Italy with Guarienti. He was on the point of going to Rome, where he remained fourteen years in the studio of Raphael Mengs. He left Rome for Dresden in 1764, where he died in the year 1795. Balletti started before me, and I left Venice to meet him in Reggio on the 1st of June, 1750. I was well fitted out, well supplied with money, and sure not to want for any if I led a proper life. We shall soon see, dear reader, what judgment you will pass on my conduct, or rather, I shall not see it, for I know that when you are able to judge, I shall no longer care for your sentence. End of chapter 4 Recording by Ashwath Ganeshan